Imagine walking out of QFC, or walking out of the movie theater, or walking out of the post office and seeing criminals being put to death. It's beyond us. I mean, we, we can't imagine that kind of thing. It's terrible. Imagine people, even including children, being able to do whatever they wanted to those people, being able to insult them, being able to punch them, being able to throw things at them, humiliate them. If you imagine that, you get at least a sense of what a crucifixion scene would have been like. This was a very public thing in a very public place, and unfortunately for some of the <coughs> areas occupied by the Romans at the time, Jesus was alive, this was a nearly daily occurrence, if not at least weekly. And we are entering into this very, very difficult story. I mean, it's interesting because our, we do have, as Protestants, our crosses often look very clean and very sanitized. In the Catholic Church, they still have Jesus hanging on the cross. They call it a crucifix. And in Protestants, we say, no, Jesus is resurrected. He's not on the cross. We don't want to remember him on the cross. But however you look at it, as Christians, the cross for us is no longer this horrible, dark sign of evil and torment, but it's a sign of God's victory over that evil. So as we enter into this, I just want to remind us of that. Every Sunday that we gather as Christians is a celebration, not of Christ's death, but of his resurrection. And in light of his resurrection, we can enter into the stories of his death and be reminded of why that was necessary and what that was about. So we're going to do that beginning today with this series, I'm calling it A View from the Cross, as we look from a slightly different perspective, as looking from Jesus' place at those around him and what he would have seen. We're going to use different stories in the Gospels to do that. We're going to begin by looking at the soldiers, the soldiers who are around the cross. Let's read Matthew 27. We're going to begin in verse 27. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's house and then gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a red military coat on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand. Then they bowed down in front of him and mocking him saying, Hey, King of the Jews! After they spit on him, they took the stick and they struck his head again and again. When they finished mocking him, they stripped him of his military coat and put, on his own, put his own clothes back on him. They led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they found Simon, the man from Cyrene. They forced him to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means skull place, they gave Jesus wine mixed with vinegar to drink. But after tasting it, he didn't want to drink it. After they crucified him, they divided up his clothes among them by drawing lots. They sat there, guarding him. They placed above his head the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They crucified him with two outlaws. They crucified with him two outlaws, one on his right side and one on his left. And then jumping to verse 54, this is after Jesus died dies on the cross and after darkness and earthquake and all that. 
When the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and what had just happened, they were filled with awe and said, this was certainly God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, help us to see with the eyes that you need us to see with as we look at this scripture and these stories, helping us to know the mind and heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What was crucifixion? How did crucifixion work? I think we've probably been, most of us, around church stories long enough to have a fairly good idea. I think it's important for us to be reminded of some things that we don't often think about, though, like crucifixion was reserved for uh, criminals, for rebels. It was not something that was typically ever done for Roman citizens. They were put to death in other, more humane ways. Crucifixion was designed to be the most hideous and torturous form of death that the Romans could come up with that would also do what the other thing they needed it to do, which was to strike fear in the populace to keep them in line. We think about the way that they did it, you know, of course, nailing Jesus' hands or perhaps through his wrists and through his feet and putting him up onto a cross. And this was done to the criminals beside him and to many hundreds and thousands of others, that they had to be very careful to do things like not nick an artery. They would kill someone too quickly. The purpose of crucifixion was to draw out death, to make it long, to make it agonizing, and to make it very, very public. The humiliation was part of it. It's all the more shocking then that we think about that crowd, the crowd of Jewish and religious leaders who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. When Pontius Pilate says, what would you like me to do with this man? Why not hang him? Why not stone him? Crucifixion was not something that most Jewish people looked fondly upon in any way. It's not something they would wish upon their worst enemies. The Romans wished it upon their worst enemies. Crucifixion was a form of torture, obviously. What would we see if we were in the place of Jesus on the cross? There's a really great book. It's a many claim it to be a classic, it is a devotional. It's called What Jesus Saw from the Cross. And it's written by, and I can never pronounce his last name properly, I think it's French, Sertelanges, A.G. Sertelanges. But the title is What Jesus Saw from the Cross. You can actually get it in digital form now. It's still in print. And in that book, he looks at, and this is part of my inspiration for thinking of this, he was a, he was a uh, priest who lived in Jerusalem. And so he experienced all the seasons, he experienced the marketplaces, he experienced all this, and he would go and sit in the place often where he believed, where they believed Jesus was crucified. And so he writes what perhaps Jesus would have seen, and it gets you into that place. But just to give us an overview, Calvary, or Golgotha, this place where Jesus was crucified, it was a slightly raised area. It's not, a, not something we would call living here a hill. It's not a, a mountain of any kind for certain. 
It's a slightly raised area, and then Jesus is raised even slightly higher to a height of probably about 10 feet out of the ground. And so his view from where he is at would have been enough to see a, a pretty great panorama if you weren't hanging on a cross. Um, this is in a place, in a location where you can see um, that at the time he would have been just outside the gate of Ephraim, about 80 yards past a main gate leading in and out of the city of Jerusalem. So a heavy traffic area, and the Romans crucified people in heavy traffic areas, again, because their purpose was to get people to see those suffering and dying so that they would behave and not disobey their authority. So Jesus is raised just slightly up. He's by this main gate. He's about, at about a quarter mile out, he could see the temple. So we're not talking very far, one lap around the track. He could see the temple walls. About 400 yards out, about four football fields away, he would see the Tower of Antonia, this fortress where he, the um, Roman power was situated. A little bit further away, about 700 yards away, Jesus would have been able to see the pinnacle, the highest point on the corner of the temple where he was tempted by Satan to throw himself down. It was a great spectacle before the crowds. And of course, <clears throat> all around him, he would have been able to see the hills <clears throat> surrounding Jerusalem, the places where the Jewish people in the past had erected the high places to worship foreign gods, the places where the people of God had turned away from God continually. He would have been been able to see at least the change of the ground into the Valley of Gehenna. This place where we get our word for hell. This place where human beings were sacrificed. This place to other gods. This place of ultimate sin. He would have seen the Mount of Olives. Where he spent many, many wonderful hours in the garden with his disciples teaching, probably eating. And of course, he would have looked around and in a wide vista, he would have seen this promised land. This land that God had said, I will take you there and I will be your God and you will be my people. And now that God is being put to death by his people. And a much more, of course. But this gives us an idea, I think, we often get so focused on the cross itself, we don't really think about all that would have been happening and going around in the view. And it's, it's interesting, and I think it's helpful for us to do that. When we look and think of Jesus looking down upon these soldiers, these men who have just done these things to him that we read about, some of them perhaps may have been like we imagine and often portray, you know, in the beautiful Roman garb and perhaps with some armor on and holding spears and all these things. But more than likely, this group was a ragtag group of mercenaries. If you want to understand this, it would be simple, similar to like um, if you think about our forces, the United States forces, when we, we have them in Afghanistan, we've had them in Iraq, we had them in Syria. And when we take captured prisoners and things like that, we often hire others to manage them and to take care of them. We hire local mercenaries, if you will, 
to do some of the work that our soldiers is not important enough for our soldiers to do. So often there would be one person, and here he's named a centurion, whether he was actually a centurion or not is really irrelevant, but someone who's in charge of the rest who were doing the dirty work, if you will, the dirty business of putting people to death on the behalf of the Roman government. It's possible that some of them may have even been Jewish because the Romans um, employed whoever would take their money and do their work. There was not a large contingent of Roman forces in Jerusalem at that time. Those who were involved in this whole scene of mocking and beating Jesus while he's still, before he's taken out of the city to be put to death, many of them were probably some of the permanent Roman soldiers who came from Italy who were hired to be in this place, who were far from home. But all of them, I think it's safe to say, likely believe that they are doing nothing wrong. They are doing nothing wrong in carrying out the orders to do what they are doing on a man who has been uniquely and jointly condemned to death by both the Jewish leaders the Jewish popular vote, the population, and the Roman government. This just didn't happen. Usually it's the Roman government putting to death someone that the people might love, or at least sympathize with. But here, everyone seems united. This man is guilty. And they're just carrying out the orders. The scene of Jesus being taken in, and he's being... Uh, He's being whipped, he's being mocked, he's being beaten. Of course, there's been much made of the kind of whipping Jesus endured. Um, What we know is that it was brutal, it was terrible, it was probably so severe that that's one of the reasons he died more quickly on the cross than normally people would have died. We find out later that these Roman soldiers come around and they're told to break the bones, the legs of those still alive on the cross so that they'll die before the Sabbath because the Romans are at least giving a nod to the Jewish population to not upset them by having these people hanging on the crosses on the Sabbath. And so by breaking legs, they will suffocate and they will die more quickly. But Jesus is already dead, probably because he was so brutally beaten and whipped with his skin likely torn off and he's bleeding to death. This Roman cohort that's involved in this, they not only whip him, but then they they mock him. They have some fun. They put a robe on him, whether here you saw our translation describes it as a a military robe, which is likely, but they're they're mocking him as king. And again, I know we go, "This this is so horrible, but just think about the things that have come out even with some of um, our military forces, U.S. forces, we think of Abu Ghraib in Iraq, or some, a small group for sure, but some are tempted to dehumanize people in such a way that they will justify doing things that they would never do at home or in another setting. And it's very likely that that's what's going on here. Jesus, to them, represents someone who's claiming authority over Rome, a king of the Jews, if you will. And so they use that to mock him. Oh yeah, you're such a great king, you know. And so they pretend like he's a king and then they whip and then they beat him and they, they do all these things. And they, they have a little fun with him before they take him out. They dehumanize him. They see in Jesus a picture of everything that they despise. 
that some of them are far from home, far from family, and they're, they're, they're disgusted by the filthy religious practices of these people who claim to only like one God of their food. They're tired of the, the dusty you know, backwater of Jerusalem. They want to get back to a place like Rome and their family. They're just here on a mission. And so it makes it easier for them to dehumanize them. When we dehumanize someone, we convince ourselves that we can do to them whatever we want. Maybe because they're poor, or because they're dark-skinned, or because they're Muslim, or because they're an illegal, whatever it is. We find ways to label people and then put them in a subhuman category to justify things to them. And if you don't believe that you're potentially possible that you could do this kind of thing, capable of it, and I find a hard time believing that I am, and yet I, I studied psychology in college, and one of the things that really struck, stuck in my mind and in my heart when I was taking social psychology was this, an experiment, and I've mentioned this before because I think it's just eye-opening to me, it was called the Milgram Shock Experiment. It started in 1961, they finished in 63. And during this experiment, and they actually have videos of this, and some of them I found are even on YouTube now, which is fascinating to me. But what would happen was they would bring in two men, and they, they had a random way of selecting people, and they'd bring them in, and they'd pretend to have one of them draw for being a teacher, and one of them draw for being the student. They pretended that was a random drawing that was set up. The student was always, or the learner was always someone who was an actor, who was paid by the experimenter. The one who was a teacher was just someone who they brought in. And what they did is they put them in this place and they were told that they're going to say some word combinations and the person on the other side of the wall has to remember them. And they see that the person who's doing this, they see the person, the learner, being strapped up to a device that's supposed to shock them. And they have in front of them a device that's labeled from 15 volts up to 450 volts, with 15 volts saying, um, you know, mild shock, or slight, I guess is a label. 300 volts, it's labeled danger, and 450 volts, it's labeled with XXX. And the job of the teacher is every time they get a word pair wrong, they're supposed to shock them and increase the shock every time. And the, the person running the experiment, he dressed in a white lab coat as a symbol of authority. And he sat behind the teacher and he would say um, one of four things. And this is all that they would say. If, they, if someone said they, they were not going to keep shocking them, they would say, please continue. And if that didn't work, they would say, the experiment requires you to continue. And if that didn't work, they would say, it's absolutely essential that you continue. And then the fourth one was, you have no other choice but to continue. That's all they did. There was no physical coercion or anything else. What were the results? These, I should have mentioned this, this happened in the U.S. These were Americans who were being tested. 65% or two-thirds of those participants continued to the very highest label on the device, 450. And I, I guess I should mention too, every time they shocked them, they could hear the person on the other side who would increase their begging for it to stop. Two-thirds of them continued all the way up to the highest one. Every single person who did it went up to 300 volts where it was labeled dangerous. This um, experiment has been widely condemned 
because of the, in psychology, because of the moral problems of doing this to people. The men who went through this were obviously, when they found out it was an experiment, were shocked and disgusted with themselves. And the American public, when they found out about this, was shocked and disgusted. And the purpose of this, this experiment was to find out how Germans in World War II, average citizens, could become the kinds of people that they were becoming in leading concentration camps and doing the things that they were doing. And what they discovered from this experiment, and there's been others who have done the same thing, is that even though we often think that we are immune to peer pressure or immune to pressure from authority or immune from doing morally wrong things just to make money, that most people, if they're given a symbol of authority and told to do something, will do it. And they will do it because they will justify that someone else told them to. And so we're excused from that responsibility. If we can pass that responsibility to someone else who has some authority, a boss, a teacher, an instructor, a, a political you know, person, a police officer, whoever, then we can say that it's not our fault. So we often think that we would not be, um, you know, fall to those lows, but the truth is most of us would. So back to the soldiers. We have these soldiers, and um, they've done this mocking, this beating, and then they take Jesus, and then we hear the second scene. We're going to look at four short scenes. They're gambling, gambling for his clothes. They, they were allowed to you know, take their clothes and take any stuff, loose change they found in their pocket. There's actually a Roman edict on this. As long as it wasn't super valuable, like gems or jewels. And so they find you know, this seamless garment, and they decide, let's not tear it into four parts. Let's... Let's um, you know, cast lots for it. Let's roll some dice for it. And in that, I think we see a picture of those who are looking for what they can get out of a situation that is where others are being hurt. And then they offer Jesus a drink. One of the most difficult parts, they say, of someone going through this kind of death, which is a death of exposure, is really what it is. You're being put out in the elements night and day without food, without water, and of course you're bleeding. What they say is that one of the worst parts would have been the thirst of it. And of course Jesus has already lost a massive amount of blood through the whipping. And so there's this interesting note that most of the gospel writers record of at least one of the soldiers offering Jesus a drink. The, the problem with the translation here is that the, the word translates often into vinegar or something like that. And the reason is because Greek didn't have a word for this. It was a Roman drink called pasca. And basically it was a common drink that almost all Roman soldiers had. They loved it for whatever reason. And it was some kind of vinegar water mixed with some herbs. And most people hated it. And the wealthy totally avoided it. But the Roman soldiers loved it. It was kind of like their, their club thing to do. You know, and so they, they always ha often had a jug nearby. Of course, they're out there standing in the heat as well, having to guard these guys on the cross. Really what they're guarding is anyone from coming and taking them down and helping them or giving them help. And so they would have had a sponge in the jar top that they take out and they lift up and offer to Jesus. And when he tastes it, he refuses it. Is there a glimmer of mercy here? We wonder as we look at these soldiers, it's hard to know, is this, a, is this another game that's being played? Luke's gospel, we didn't read Luke's story, but in Luke's gospel, in verse 20, or chapter 26, 36, it says, 
that the soldiers mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. So there's some question is, were they really giving mercy or were they holding it just out of his reach because he was so thirsty? Or just laughing because they knew that once he tasted it, he would hate it. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what's going on here. And then there's this interesting note in verse 54. The confession of the centurion who's standing watching. He sees everything that's happened. He's going to see everything that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Different people, the different things that are said, the things that Jesus says. And at the end, he says, surely this was God's son. And this isn't a confession of full understanding. Not as we understand Jesus to be the son of God. But it was a confession that was at least saying, I see God's hand in this, or at least what I understand to be God. This was not a common criminal who was dying here. Something divine inspires him to make this confession. And I will say, it hasn't changed. We believe as Christians that it still requires God's act in us for us not to simply be like those Roman soldiers, to not simply be those who are just doing our job because someone told us to do it. Those who have a moral conscience, who understand the Holy Spirit, it comes from God's work in us first. And it's interesting that the gospel writers record this, that someone who seems to be so cruel, so distant from someone we would think of as good, in the story, confesses it with his lips. Truly, this is God's son. This series that we're doing in a night, it's important to bring this up today because in Luke's gospel, again, in verse 34 of chapter 23, Jesus says this, and Luke is the only one who records it, but it's super important. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, we believe that that extends probably to all of those who are around and and, and by extent to us as well. But very directly and narrowly, this is spoken to the soldiers who are doing it, who are putting him to death. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And Jesus saying that to these men, this really sets the stage for all that we're thinking about as we move through Lent and thinking about what Jesus saw from the cross. Know this, God knows your heart. God knows the depths. God knows the dark places. God knows those places that you would not even dare share with your most intimate companion because you think, if I share this, my true self will be revealed and people will not love me. God knows it. And God forgives it. And God loves you. And this is why we can look at the crucifixion and say, this isn't a horror story. This is good news. This is good news because God knew the hearts of those soldiers. And he says, forgive them as he's hanging on the cross. God knows our hearts. And he says, forgive them. 